Hi, this is John Cackley with Centric Viz and Tech Talks. Today I'm talking with my colleague, Michael McNeil, about marketing automation, privacy data, and Coke versus Pepsi. Michael, tell me more about yourself. What's your role with Centric? My role is I'm the National Marketing Operations Practice Lead, and that really entails our work around marketing automation tools like Salesforce Marketing Cloud and Marketo, to name a couple. And Marketing automation, you think of the tools, and with marketing operations, we really start getting into the processes, the roles of the people supporting these process, these tools, as well as the technologies. Personally, I've been eccentric around three years. It'll be three years at the end of February. And previous to Centric, I had roles in marketing with Toyota, Microsoft, and T-Mobile. And my work has spanned anything from conventional digital marketing to e-commerce, loyalty, some work in the social space, as well as initiating direct marketing programs. Okay, that's that's a pretty good coverage of different things in marketing. But uh, let's talk more about marketing automation. Tell me more about that. Marketing automation really talks about the different platforms. So marketing automation are software platforms, as I mentioned, like Salesforce, Marketing Cloud, Marketo, HubSpot, uh, IBM has their Watson campaign automation, and then Adobe has their marketing cloud. And these platforms really are about making your marketing tasks that are repetitive, like sending outbound communications, a lot more effective and efficient. And in that regard, they're very much about being data-driven, taking any of the communications you want to have and have them sent out to your audience in an automated fashion so you don't have resources building manual emails, manual campaigns, and you can really have them direct your customer experience in a very hands-off way, providing you have the correct content and data to drive them. And then the support function really is marketing operations. And this is really a lot more comprehensive view of the marketing function. And as I mentioned, this includes the process, the technology, and, and the people involved. And ideally, when these are set up, both the automation and the operation, you're able to scale with quality and consistency and be vet very agile in your marketing. And when we say scale, as well as Thinking of marketing automation, people say, great, I can send more emails quicker or faster. <laughs> and while you can right. do that, while you can do that, <laughs> that's not a, that's not necessarily the, the primary use case. A lot of it's about sending the right message at the right time to the right user via the right channel. And right. This, these tools really allow you to do that level of execution a lot more efficiently. And in some cases, you couldn't do it at all before. Right. So it seems like marketing automation focuses more on a marketing life cycle where traditional marketing is more marketing is more campaigns. Do I have that right? Um, can you expand on that? Yeah, campaigns really are a component of marketing, whether it's marketing automation or otherwise. And that's what most people think of is I'm going to do a campaign to sell X number of items, products or services. That may be one aspect and you may have one campaign, let's say around a holiday or around a certain part of your business. Really, when you think about marketing automation, the broader context is really driving engagement and driving a relationship with the customer. And so there are campaigns, and campaigns can be around sales of products, but lots of times you may have campaigns that are really just awareness campaigns to get your name out there. So when you start thinking of this in terms of a traditional marketing life cycle, you start understanding that there's top of funnel with awareness and ultimately you're driving down to some sort of conversion. 
Conversion can be sales in many cases. It can be engagement with a product. We've done campaigns, for example, for our clients, anything from driving sales to driving download of a mobile app because the client really wants to have another way to interface with their customers. So there's different ways of driving to whatever that conversion is. And then ultimately after that, there's a great use case for all of the marketing automation tools around what happens afterwards. So this could be onboarding with your product. This could be loyalty campaigns. All of the points and communications, once you already have them as a customer or have them engaged. The great thing about those efforts are that cost of customer acquisition is typically on the order of five or six times the uh, cost of customer retention. And so marketing automation ends up being a great retention tool for establishing a relationship with a customer, maintaining it, and then ideally getting them to be a product loyalist or even an evangelist for your product. Cool. Now you mentioned a couple of things in there, conversions and retention. Uh, those are a couple of typical, I believe they're, I'm not a marketing expert, right? So, but those, I believe those are typical metrics used to measure marketing campaigns. And I understand that it's becoming increasingly challenging to try to figure out, you know, what the right metrics are as you go through social media and all these different ways that people are reached out to. Uh, how does marketing automation address the, the challenge of evaluating a campaign success? Yeah, with, with marketing automation and, you know, where these really go beyond when people think of email campaigns or excuse me, email platforms, you know, these platforms now have the ability to do web tracking. So that means when you visit a website, it can track you even anonymously before it knows who you are. And then when you do submit a form or you purchase something, it can trace all your previous activities up to that point when you're filling out a form and becoming identifiable. Uh, as well as return visits to the site. And so all of a sudden you have all of this web tracking to tie to an outbound can campaign or to tie to a conversion. And you have a lot more, a lot greater picture and a lot greater understanding of what the activities were that that customer may have done beforehand, as well as understanding what types of content that they're engaging with. And for the people who do convert and convert on a certain product or service, what content resonated most with them. So it really lets you go back up the value chain and invest in your best performing content to drive more sales and conversion. Where it does get a bit more complicated, as you alluded to, is the fact that there is social, there are a number of mobile devices. I can look at something on a tablet, on my mobile phone, on my desktop, and being able to piece all of those together. It is a bit more difficult when you're not logged in and you're anonymous and you know there there's definitely gaps there there's various ways where you can kind of fill in the gaps there but ultimately it comes down to having a good experience where the customer or potential customer wants to volunteer their information and they give you the ability to track to track them and you know that's one of the challenges we have moving forward as marketers is the ability to track and understand and what that looks like in the new regulatory and compliance world moving forward that started last year with GDPR and right. Europe and, continue, and continues across the US with some of California's privacy acts as well as in Canada with some of their adoption of GDPR, similar legislation. Uh, ultimately, I will say that 
you know, even with what marketing automation can do, there's still a little bit of, I'll call heavy lifting involved sometimes. If you're doing a lot of campaigns and doing your marketing automation in one platform and all of your sales occur someplace separately. We have one retail client with points of sale where you can enter information and become identified as a loyal returning customer. And that doesn't always flow back and connect with what in, what they engaged with from the marketing automation perspective. So you still might have to tie back data to say they received all these communications from us and they rather than purchase online, they went and purchased in a retail location. And how can you connect those dots to see what the influence of a campaign or your communications may have been for an offline sale? So it does enable you to do that because you now have more metrics than you did before and ways to identify it. It doesn't always connect all of the dots based on your sales model. Right. One thing you talked about a lot there was the customer relationship. And some of the decks you shared with me as background, you know, talked about your experiences in this. So uh, as a consumer, can you talk me through your ideal experience as driven by marketing automation? It's easy for me to look at what I receive in my in my inbox and via text and everything else and be overly critical because it's what I do and what I what I like to look at. Um, for me, it's and as I mentioned, it's about building that relationship and really being in front of me and talking to me when I want to be spoken to about what I want to be spoken to. People taking those cues and using those cues and what I've volunteered to give them as well as what they're doing from an analytics perspective to know when to message me about buying more coffee or when I might be in the market for a new car or whatever that may be, as well as staying kind of brand relevant. And by that, I mean, there are certain ways to stay in front of a consumer and not be salesy. It could be a newsletter, it could be a value add communication, could be something where they're giving reviews that are pertinent to either what I purchased or products that may be very complimentary. So in that regard, it's really about you know speaking to me and not always selling to me. It's building that relationship and building that trust. And building that trust and building the relationship becomes even more important moving forward because of the regulatory environments. I'm a lot more willing to provide my information and be contacted by companies that I trust, companies that are gonna treat me the way I would like to be treated. So that's not too many communications, that's not, selling my information to your partners that's not hitting me at the wrong time with the wrong message so it's definitely a balancing act for sure but more and more you see companies being able to get this right because they're doing the additional investments beyond the platform the additional investments that these often aren't told about are in the investments in the data and turning that data into analytics and then the content. So you can provide me something that's really meaningful and relevant that I want to engage with. Right, right. Yeah, one thing I really liked, I think it was in some of your materials, was giving an idea of that life cycle. And it, probably in marketing, this is, this is a total you know, no-brainer, but to those of us who don't live in marketing, I thought it was great, the description with a car, right? You buy a new car, and you're really excited, and it, you, know, you name it or whatever, it's your brand new car. But gradually, it goes from being you know, the special car to its A car and, and it sort of it tapers off your enthusiasm. And at a certain point, you know, you just think of it, it's it's the thing sitting in the driveway and mentally you're you've you've moved on. You're ready to get a new car. You know, you, you keep on sending people things like, Hey, welcome to the I'm gonna make up, you know, Volkswagen family when they when you just bought one, but later on you're actually trying to sell a car because there's no point in selling a car to a person who just bought one. I thought that was sort of an interesting 
insight as that may be obvious to people in marketing. But yeah, the other thing that that you run across with you know cars as well as other products is that the ownership of the customer relationship changes over time. So when you're not yet in market or you're starting to become in market to buy a product, oftentimes marketing owns that and they're that relationship with the customer or potential customer. And they're kind of in charge of getting them to become a qualified lead or a lead that then sales may act upon. And this happens in the car industry with, you know, you may have di digital marketing campaigns that are driving you to your local dealership. You may have other, other similar aspects. And then at a certain point, the salesperson owns a relationship and how do they know what you've been told by marketing and what you've right. been promised or what an incentive or an offer is. And then even post sales, you know, depending upon what the sales model is like, who owns the customer after the salesman completes the sale? Is there a customer service department? Is there, in the terms of automotive, is there a service department? Is there parts and service to do accessories? What's that look like? And really who owns the relationship and who owns the messaging? So as you go through this life cycle, who owns speaking to the customer really changes over time, depending upon the company. And you can also have different competing messages. So you may have parts and service sending one message and you may have sales at the same time sending you another message. And lots of times companies are not organized and they don't organize their different business units around a total customer experience that marketing automation can enable. And marketing automation can set business rules to prevent those conflicts from happening. So with this part of the life cycle, any message from marketing is going to take precedence over a parts and service message. And then in the automotive world, a, a recall or a warranty, <laughs> right, war, right. warranty warranty message may trump everything. You know, marketing automation gives you the ability to do those outbound communications, but also set the business rules. So you do feel like a customer and you do feel valued and you're not getting flooded or you don't feel like you're dealing with three or four different parts of an organization. Cool. That's awesome. That's awesome. We touched on a couple of things here. Is there a tie-in between marketing automation and artificial intelligence? You know, maybe predicting the marketing that will work best or or predicting sales based on certain things? Yeah, that's been kind of the hot button in many industries for the last couple of years. And marketing automation is no exception there. The most common instances you see are using marketing automation to determine what the next best messages for someone that you're speaking to, whether it's sales or loyalty or otherwise. And they'll look at what the response was to different messages for people very similar to whatever your characteristics are. So maybe this is your second or third message after signing up for something online. It'll say for people that have these known characteristics that we know about, maybe product you're interested in, it could be demographic information, could be location-based information, could be return customer versus new customer. They can AI will select a certain best message to send you. And so it can select from a pre-existing set of messages. And then ideally you want to get to the point where it can select specific content, not just sending a whole prefabricated message, but building a message for you on the fly based around what content will be best for performing for you. Awesome. That sounds really cool. Tell me about the change management activity involved in a company adopting marketing automation. How much of a cultural shift is it for some companies to get into this? It can be a very big cultural shift depending upon the company and where they're coming from and also how many different departments are using it. For example, 
we've dealt with companies before where different departments had different marketing automation platforms and they were looking to centralize the marketing automation platform, both from a cost perspective as well as a governance perspective. So in, in a situation like that, it's a matter really of kind of changing the culture, getting them all on board with a platform and then understanding what does governance look like to support their industry. And that can vary greatly from a typical B2C retail company, as well as to a financial services company where there may be regulatory compliance issues around certain sending certain types of messaging. And so a lot of it really is about onboarding these teams, having them have a sense of ownership in the platform, as well as abiding by some of the governance that goes with them. And without doing organizational change, you can often have the platform not be used or not be used effectively. And you get into this ownership dilemma two, maybe three years down the road where you're writing a very large check for a marketing automation platform service renewal, and you really can't quantify or justify that expense because you don't have the broad use of the platform across all the groups that should be using it. They didn't buy in initially. Similar problem that you see with many different types of technology is one department, whether it's IT or marketing or not sales, another part of the organization, makes an investment in a technology and they don't go through the effort to educate, onboard, and have active participation by the rest of the, the company. So what sort of organization does marketing automation work best for? A lot of people think marketing automation works best for enterprises. And while it is very effective at the enterprise level, we see a lot of medium-sized companies and even some of the larger SMBs getting into marketing automation and using it very effectively. And even when you start talking at the medium and larger SMBs, it can become a point of competitive differentiation because you're now able to engage more effectively. You're able to get more communications out more efficiently. And that may be something that your competitors cannot do in that space we've developed a, a marketing automation maturity model, and we realize not everyone's gonna be in the most advanced states, but that doesn't mean that you can't be very effective in what you're doing, making the right investments to a smaller degree, and having a plan on how you can most effectively use marketing automation. As I mentioned before, a lot of companies don't understand the other investments they have to make to be effective, and they don't have to be significant investments. They just have to be planned and thoughtful and make sure they align with how you're using the technology you, that you have. For people like myself who don't know the jargon, what is an SMB? SMB is a smaller, medium-sized business. They tend to be the lower end. Uh, right. of and the other thing that we've seen is that a lot of the tools that were previously considered email-only tools like mm -hmm. uh, MailChimp or Constant Contact, they're now starting to have marketing automation capabilities. And by that, I mean they can now send emails that are triggered. So it's not just upload an Excel spreadsheet. You have a template and it sends it out. They can now use certain types of triggers, and they're mm -hmm. doing some very basic marketing automation, even at lower price points. Oh, okay. And, and granted, it's limited functionality, but certain lower market tools now have the ability to do like abandoned shopping cart messages, various things that previously were only available in the more sophisticated and, and higher enterprise level tools. So you are seeing a lot of this trickle down effect 
of what was previously high-end capabilities going downstream as the larger enterprise tools or enterprise focus tools start to gravitate towards advanced features like we talked about with AI mm -hmm. and some other uh, some other work there. Great. That's very interesting. So we talked about a couple of gotchas sort of of marketing automation implementation, you know, the change management challenge, making sure that supporting technology is implemented. What other gotchas do you see that you warn people about for a marketing automation project? Well, we, we've talked about a couple of them briefly, as I mentioned, the, the investments around data and then turning that data into actionable analytics. In today's world, it's great because you can gather a lot of data, but how do you make that useful? How does that become a trigger for a journey or how does that give you insight into what type of content someone may like or what's working best? So it's being able to, to take all that data that you have from whether it's your web analytics platform or your sales platform, your customer database that's likely outside of your marketing automation platform, and turning that into insights to help drive your marketing or at least test your marketing. And then to be able to do that is having the analytics investments, whether that's different tools that can do analytical processing for you, just having a data analyst on staff or being able to get those resources to do that. And then once you understand that, it's, you know, how do you have content available? What do you have the right content available? How do you generate that? And before people get all worked up, you don't have to become a content factory. You know, you don't have to have everyone in your company writing content. Right. What, what, we, what we found is, you know, in the na nature of building relationships, customers expect you to have curated content where you're promoting someone else giving a product review or product recommendation you know, you're not always, they don't always want to hear you speaking about your own product or service, right? They're going to, mm -hmm. they're going to, they're going to go out and they're going to look at reviews. They're going to do all this. So why not naturally expose them to that and develop that trust in that relationship saying, Hey, we're not afraid to show you how our product did in a comparison test. We're not afraid to show you some of our reviews or ratings on different third party sites. And so those investments around content and data and analytics are very important. And that can be a got you if you're not aware of that initially. We'd mentioned the organizational change management and spoke about that. And I'd say the other thing, too, is the platform ownership. Marketing buys a platform and IT says, well, we can't get around to integrating all the data sources you need for the next two years. Right. Right. And so there can be there can be tension around platform ownership, making the platform more usable because it's not always a, a marketing issue to solve and marketing doesn't always have those resources. And it's not like many IT departments are gonna let marketing hire a team to come in and play in the IT space to, right. to, right. connect, <laughs> to, to, to connect data sources. So right. we see pl platform ownership and kind of buy-in across the IT and the marketing chain as a tension point, right? And that's something that we often have to educate people on is to understand that now you've made this investment, who's going to own it, who's going to make sure it's up and functioning, all the data is flowing into it. And then even separately, who's going to be doing all the reporting? Because the tools, as we mentioned, only have so much native reporting. You may have to connect reporting ah, across, right. across, across data sources. Is mm -hmm. that something IT is going to do? Does marketing have that? Does the company have their own analytics department? What's that really look like? Uh, so that's another kind of gotcha is, you know, now that you've purchased it, 
right? Who's going to do the care and feeding of this platform and get it to be functional? Got it. Got it. So what changes do you see coming in marketing automation? What's what's the big new thing coming up? As kind of what's in the future, I mentioned the regulatory environment, and that's rapidly changing. GDPR that went into effect May of last year in Europe really changed the aspects around consent as well as data management and being able to request your data be deleted and that you never existed for a company. And you see California has something passed that has aspects of that. Canada has something on the books now as well. And it all really comes down to what we've spoken about a little bit here is developing that relationship and having the customer trust you and trust you enough to volunteer their information and know that you're going to treat them respectfully you're, and you're going to handle their, their data with care. And, you know, slowly companies are evolving into this, right? There's still been some big fines around that. You know, Google was recently fined a, a large amount within the last month or so for violation of GDPR, the first noticeably <laughs> right. great, great fine. But a lot of it will come down to what's that regulatory environment look like. But as marketers, it, it shouldn't be about doing a single sale. It really should be about that relationship building. And if you can do that and you're set up for that, the regulatory and compliance isn't going to be as impactful or as harmful as some people may lead you to think it is. Okay. Yeah, it just sounded like you know, describing being able to connect an identity through multiple different devices, different browsing sessions, you know, it's some of that sounds pretty borderline to some of the things that have been talked about with Facebook, um, notably. What one wonders, you know, is there some risk that some big chunk of, of what we're talking about here could actually become purely illegal? I well, I think, what do you think? <laughs> well, I think, I think, I mean, Facebook is definitely, it's, it, it's wave the flag and raise the awareness on, you know, privacy and kind of, you know, what's being done with your data. Mm -hmm. But going back even 10 years, I was involved in doing predictive modeling, and we would know when you'd be in market for a vehicle. Uh, we developed mm -hmm. models, and we developed, we used our own data. We used third-party data sources like Experian, and mm -hmm. people think of Experian being able to tell you credit information and financial information, and it can. Right. And then additionally, they also have uh, different products where it can tell you demographic and psychographic information about about individuals at a household level. So previously, marketers were kind of constrained to using census data, which was at a very aggregate level and also wasn't very timely, at least in the US, because the time periods between the information was so long. And now all of a sudden with these third-party data providers, you're able to get a picture of your existing clients and use that and compare it to other known data sets to say, okay, this person may be a potential new client. We, you know, different people call them different things. I've heard it called lookalike audiences. So you can, look at, you can look at your customers and say, here's what our customers typically look like. And then ideally you've done some analytics to say, here's our most valuable customers. They have a highest lifetime value for us. Let's go find more of them. <laughs> so Got you it. develop, right. you develop a profile and then how can you go out and and match against other people that have that type of profile. And some of it's based on modeling. So they don't even need your exact data or they don't need the level of detail that Facebook may have. They just need some of it in aggregate to be able to target to you and get in front of you. I see. I see. All right. So I, one last question here. Uh, first of all, did you see the Super Bowl by any chance? I don't know where you I were. 
<laughs> I saw I saw parts of it. I didn't didn't see the whole thing. All right. So were you in the U.S. when you when you saw it, or were you out of the country? I was in Europe watching it on French television. Okay, because there was an ad, and I'm curious about your opinion of, and, and I'm assuming you would not have seen the same ad in, on French television. It was a Pepsi ad, but it started with a person in a restaurant ordering a Coke, and then the waiter the waiter says, "Is Pepsi okay?" And then it went off on all these things, and they had entertainers dancing through the restaurant and so on, and and basically trying to convert the the uh, storyline into, you know, Pepsi is more than okay. It's what you should order to begin with, but Still, you know, recognize Pepsi and Coke have a unique rivalry. I don't know. It seemed like a pretty funny ad because it still started with, you know, a rec- you know, sort of a recognition that Coke is the preference that people have. It's sort of an odd thing for a company to do. I mean, did you hear about that ad? Uh, I, yeah, I did hear about it. And it's – they've always kind of walked that line, Coke and Pepsi. I mean, going back decades, right, it was the Pepsi, right. challenge, Pepsi challenge and everything else like that. And they, even in the marketing uh, front, right, it's been do you – do you name your competitors, right, right. in your ad, in your ads, or do you recognize them, right? And that's this has always been a big thing in the the auto industry. So mm-hmm. if you're Ford, do you recognize Chevy and vice right. versa? What's that look like? And there's some some famous commercials in that space, even within the last few years, where Ford had a a new truck bed that was aluminum, and they were claiming right. the, the lightness and everything else, and uh, Chevrolet showed them dropping a toolbox into it and putting a hole in the bed and everything. Right, I remember that one. <laughs> so, so they so they go back and forth. It's definitely kind of that brand recognition of who it is, and you know, with with Pepsi doing that, you know, what it makes me think of is you know, number two's a very valuable position because going back, you know, equally as far as the Pepsi challenge, I think <laughs> is the uh, Avis. Davis was oh, number yes. two. Absolutely. They try harder. Yep. Exactly. Exactly. So it's the not unknown in marketing. It can be a very effective way to to trigger. And then I, the, what it makes me think of, though, is moving forward, is there going to be ways that someone can tell that you're drinking a Pepsi product without you knowing it? Right. <laughs> and, and, no, right. And, and really, it's really it's if you're you know, if you're Coke and someone posts an Instagram picture or a Facebook picture of a Pepsi can. Right or them drinking a Pepsi, right? Can they use that to market Coke to you, right? Yeah, that uh, because because you can get optical recognition and understand that it's a Pepsi can. So right. what could what could Coke do with that to appear in your as a Facebook ad next to your picture of you <laughs> drinking a Pepsi on the beach? So and I think it's, it's the technology is there, right? That's what's so right. fun about it. There's that all the technology is there, and then you kind of alluded to this previously with some of the modeling is it's how do you not become or be perceived as being too stalkerish as a marketer? <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Right. And where, where, where's that fine line? And I, I end one of my presentations with a few different thoughts. And one of them as a marketer is just because you can do it, should you do it? Right. right? You have all of this data available and all this analytical power and computing power and all of these ways to get in front of people. Uh, you know, on their phones, on television, email, et cetera, right? But should you do it, right? What's right. What, what's that customer experience going to look like and what are they going to walk away thinking about? And that, that's one of the things I like to leave people with is how do you market responsibly and how would you like to be marketed to with marketed in quotes as it relates to building that relationship we've spoken about? Right, right. I worked uh, many years ago with Microsoft, and on a 
early days of a program. I don't even know where it went. So that's why I feel a little bit safe talking about it. But a big part of it was the idea that they might know about me because I bought the home version of Microsoft Office. They might know about me because I have a licensed version through my company and they might know me through through some other place, but they had a principle, at least at that time, that they would never connect those identities unless I as the consumer, as the as the user, said yes, these are actually all me. They they could you often deduce that you were multiple different identities, but they would never use that in their official marketing data until you had said it as a user. Part of it gets into the what's the ethicalness of the the company and how are they using that data, right? Going back mm-hmm. into the Facebook side as well. And I've heard I've heard a few companies mention something similar, right? I've heard it called prosumer. What's mm. your prof- what's your professional side versus your consumer side and how would you connect the two if you have multiple different relationships? with a company. So if you do have a professional relationship and you do have a a regular consumer relationship, how would you connect those two? And it it exists a lot in the software as a service world. You might have a a Dropbox account corporately as well as one personally, any other types of companies that exist like that. And how, how does that work? And how do you maybe leverage some of that information, but you do it in a way that's very responsible and you're not, you know, stalking them so to speak and you're not coming across as being overtly bad in your data usage that you have access to across two different entities and and some of that depending upon the companies and how they're set up you know they can't do that from a a legal perspective anyway because you're signing (laughs) different privacy policies right etc but they can to note they can do that in aggregate and they can look at you not as an individual but say these groups of people with with these characteristics mapped directly to here and they can draw reference, you know, inferences and draw insights from that at an aggregate level and use that. And that's usually legal regardless of where you're at because it's not at a personally identifiable level. Right. All right. Well, I think that's everything that I had here. Uh, any other thoughts you want to leave a, leave our conversation with? Uh, well, I'll say two things. I will give a, uh, a plug for a blog post I just made that talks about the cost of marketing automation success, and it mentions data content and analytics like we've spoken about. And then I'd also just like to say, you know, this is a rapidly evolving field. The marketing technologies are changing, you know, day over day. And all the data that's available to marketers, all of the ways they can get in touch with you are all constantly evolving. And it's your right and your responsibility as someone being marketed to, to push back if that's not correct. And it's, you know, the role of whoever's marketing to you to treat you with integrity and respect. And, and sometimes it's the actual law as well. Right. Uh, right. So, you know, it, it kind of goes back to, you know, choose your companies that you're going to deal with like you choose your friends, right? Mm-hmm. People that, that treat you the best, that treat people that, you know, you have a good relationship with, and it works out best for everyone. Right, right. And just to complete the plug on your on your blog article, is that on LinkedIn? That is posted on LinkedIn. I posted that on LinkedIn as well as Centric did, and then it's also available on the centricconsulting.com website. Okay, and in case people are looking for you, it's Michael McNeil, M-C-N-E-A-L, right? That is correct. Okay, awesome. This has been Centric's Biz and Tech Talks. Thanks to Michael McNeil for joining me, and thank you for listening.